Live from WNUR News, I'm Cara Totley. And I'm Jessica Watts. You're listening to the 6 o'clock news on WNUR 89.3 FM HD1 Evanston, Chicago. It's Friday, May 19th, 2023. Tonight on WNUR News, it's our spring quarter special broadcast. All of our stories will focus around the theme AI, but not necessarily just artificial intelligence. These stories and more coming up tonight on WNUR News at 6. Thanks for tuning in. For tonight, our reporters will be Daniel Gross, Jesse Chen, Brandon Priceman, and Jonah Turner. Wait, but wait, there's more. Jessica Watts, Michelle Huang, Brandon Condritz, and Paul O'Connor. Before we can dive into our AI broadcast, we should probably give a brief overview into what AI is. Luckily, Daniel Gross has us covered. AI a buzzword that has caught the tech world and really the whole world by storm. From ChatGPT to jobs being automated away to massive investments from tech firms like Google and Microsoft, it's clear that AI will play a big part in the future. So what is AI? AI basically is, is, is you know, just creating uh, an artificial or machine version of whatever intelligence is. That's Professor Mohamed Alam, who is the Deputy Director of Northwestern's Masters of Science in AI. The problem is, when we set out on that endeavor of creating intelligence artificially, we realize that the only part of artificial intelligence that we know anything about is the artificial part, that you know it's not going to be natural. We actually have no idea, absolutely zero idea about the intelligence part. We don't actually know what it is or whether it's even a thing. Everything we know about intelligence is based on our assumption and feeling that there is something called intelligence. The field of mathematical methods often used in artificial intelligence is called machine learning. They improve by experiencing data, hence the term learning. Natural language processing, another field within AI, is the study and creation of machines that can understand human language. AI can be used to chat with, make images, classify data, and even to create music in the style of famous artists. As a result, many people in creative industries see AI as a threat to their livelihood. Others see the potential for automating jobs and the possibility of mass layoffs. So is AI worth the hype, or is it something to be afraid of? Um, I, I'd like to quote uh, or paraphrase uh, a quote that uh, from a researcher at Microsoft. His name is Peter Lee. And he said that AI is at the same time, currently AI is at the same time, overhyped and underhyped. So there's a lot of overhype where, you know, people are saying things that are not just not true about AI. They just want to create the hype. But there are also people who are downplaying it, which is also not correct because AI is powerful. A lot of great things happened and will continue to happen, but people are downplaying it. We'll have to see how much artificial intelligence will affect other AI abbreviations and the rest of the world. For WNUR News, I'm Daniel Gross. Now that we know a little bit more about AI, we can look into how artificial intelligence has become an increasingly powerful tool, specifically with record labels and artists in the Korean pop music industry exploration into this phenomenon. Jesse Chen has the story. You might recognize this voice as Jungkook from BTS. And this one as Jenny from Blackpink. But who sang this line in one of Espa's new songs? Bang new wave, 
We are made. And whose voices do these belong to? In the world of Korean pop music, or K-pop, the ever-growing need to innovate, experiment, and expand genres has led to some uncanny creations in the past few years. I think um, a lot of the nature of why K-pop is what it is is because they try to set themselves apart as like a separate genre from like normal pop music. That school of calm first year, Jing Si Yap, she says some of the biggest players in the Korean pop music industry have turned to technology to create their newest hits. And I also think it has a lot to do with like the people who have the most money in K-pop seeing value in investing in AI. Jing Si also alludes to the creative vision of the founder of SM, a hugely successful South Korean multinational entertainment agency and record label. Specifically, this has to do with Isuman and um, SM Entertainment and him finding value in his vision for AI and like AI being the future of the world and therefore AI should be the future of music for his idols. In 2020, SM introduced its girl group, Espa, composed of four members, Karina, Winter, Giselle, and Ningning, and four of their virtual counterparts called Eyes. Originally, I was just like confused because it was just like their AI persona version of them, it felt like, and I was like, oh, this better not like really be a thing. And then it ended up not really being a thing. So I was like, okay, whatever then. That's Weinberg first year, Elizabeth Wang, who thinks that Espa's use of AI is mainly a marketing tactic. Her sentiment is also echoed by School of Calm first year, Patrick Mann, who attributes Espa's virtual avatars to being part of their concept or the general theme and image that a K-pop group represents. I think it's literally just a concept. I don't think it's, I don't think it's anything more than that. And because like their most recent comeback song, Spicy, has like nothing to do with their concept or like, or their previous concept or didn't have any, they didn't feature any of their like AI selves. So I think it's, I think it's literally just for the concept. The only thing I didn't like about the concept was that they would have random keywords like Kwangya. Kwangya is a universe that Espa canonically exists in. And I was like, that makes no sense. Although AI has become an increasingly popular tool lately, its history in the K-pop industry can be traced back as far as 2018. With KDA, the virtual girl group composed of four themed versions of characters from the video game League of Legends. And I remember being really impressed because at the time they had um, had these like virtual avatars, but I also noticed that like the people voicing the avatars were members of an actual K-pop group. At that point, it was mainly like a virtual concept to like market these in-game characters. That's Carolyn Gang, a third year in Weinberg and a WNUR DJ who draws heavily from K-pop sound. But I think since then there have been like act, like truly like AI generated groups by like tech companies. And stuff. Notably, the company Metaverse Entertainment debuted a fully virtual four member girl group this year named Maeve. Maeve was like this massive project by this uh, big corporation in Korea and they wanted to kind of like market it as like a group that could be like mass appealing and cater to like people's very specific ideas of what like an attractive K-pop star could look like. Carolyn speaks to the malleable quality of AI, which allows for high customization when creating idol groups. However, McCormick first year, Lena Deng, is a bit wary of its implications. I feel kind of conflicted. I feel like a lot of K-pop is having an idol and it's kind of freaky to be able to have 
companies like fully shape what we think people ought to look like and the talents they ought to have because when you have an AI all of that is buildable by like the company's own opinions. Jingxi also echoes Lena's sentiments. The way that AI idols are like pretty much the perfect idol sometimes doesn't really sit right for you because you can make an AI idol perfectly fit any single beauty standard that you want them to. And Patrick is just generally opposed to the idea. I am a big no. There's a big no for me. But like, low-key the song is good. Carolyn also speaks to some of the reasons why some companies may find AI to be a profitable tool in creating K-pop groups. The thing is, they say it's like it costs a lot less to like quote-unquote train uh, an AI model of K-pop instead of like training a human trainee. Here, Carolyn references the trainee system, a grueling process that usually involves intensely taking vocal, dance, and occasionally language lessons, which all K-pop idols have to endure in order to successfully debut in a group. The whole reason you have the trainee system in place is to make these idols feel ready. To like go out into the world and to sing and to dance and to be held to that high moral standard. And so when you are able to incorporate AI like solely as your tactic, then I don't think the trainee system works anymore. Jingxi also speaks to how the use of AI in creating K-pop groups can perpetuate existing toxic standards in the industry. The reason why K-pop companies see so much value in AI is because of how much value the industry itself puts on being young and being able to work like non-stop. And so having AI idols pretty much means that A, your idols will always be young because they're never going to age, and B, that you're allowed to relentlessly work them and they'll never get any older, and they'll never get tired, and at the end of the day, these AI idols will make you the most money with the least amount of investment. Carolyn also speaks to the broader consequences that this technology could bring to the industry. I think in a lot of ways the AI trends in, in K-pop and like creation of AI K-pop groups is very similar to like other AI trends when we look at like ChatGPT or we look at new uh, language processing models. Um, it, it came from like decent intentions. Like the pandemic was it shut everything down. So having a virtual presence was super important. So the problem now is again, like how does this go into labor laws? How does this go into like AI art and copyright laws? There's just so many, I, I think the, the, the gray area definitely exists. And it also calls into question like, you know, how quote unquote authentic can these be? And like how, how much of like K-pop is the product rather than uh, the people necessarily involved in the process. In discussing the possibility of AI replacing its human counterparts in the K-pop industry, Lena doesn't think it's currently likely to happen anytime soon. With pure, like an actual like robot slash like chat GPT written idol, I think people wouldn't be able to get over that uncanny valley feeling. I don't know if I see it displacing human idols though. Yeah, even like Maeve's current success doesn't compare really in any way to the success that like live idols have seen. Carolyn says that a big reason behind K-pop's popularity is its genuine side. A huge part of fandom, especially in K-pop, is this idea of like authenticity and being able to uh, kind of interact between the artist and the fan. I think a lot of fans do appreciate 
hearing these kind of like, you know, little mess ups from idols or like seeing little jokes that they crack over like VLives. A Korean live streaming platform. And I think that part of the industry is like so crucial to like the how like successful these fandoms have become that I I don't think AI will ever kind of get to that level where it'll start creating these types of little little mistakes and glitches to like create authenticity. Jingxi also shares his opinion. People like their idols the way they like them because despite being held to like an incredibly high moral standard, they still feel human. And when you ask a lot of fans, you know, what's your favorite thing about this idol? It's usually not, oh, they're like, it usually is, okay, yeah, they're a wonderful dancer, they're you, like, they're a great singer, but it also comes with this, like, wow, I love their personality, wow, I think they, like, are an incredibly nice person, or I feel like I can, like, relate to them. And then also has this aspect of, like, parasocialism, which is, like, I feel like I can be in a relationship or, like, with the idol, whether it's as a friend, whether it's as, like, a significant other. These idols are asked to portray parasocial relationships that I think that AI idols can't do as well because they aren't human. For WNUR News, I'm Jesse Chen. Speaking of music, our very own anchor, Jessica Watts, did a Where Are They Now with season five winner of American Idol. Could you give us a little teaser into your story? Coming up, you'll hear all about my interview with season five winner, Taylor Hicks, and a little bit about the history of American Idol's popularity, as well as where it is now. But to hear more, you're just gonna have to keep listening. The winner of American Idol is Kelly Clarkson. Ruben Studdard! Taylor Hicks! Jordan Sparks! American Idol has taken the world by storm after debuting in 2002. It has produced extremely famous singers like Kelly Clarkson, Carrie Underwood, and Jennifer Hudson, and included judges such as Paula Abdul, Lionel Richie, and Luke Bryan. Singing competition shows have been massively successful. In a 2021 study, it was found that American Idol was ranked as the third most popular singing competition show with the mass singer and the voice in the number one and number two spots. I spoke with a singing competition show superfan Molly McGee about her love for American Idol. I think it's the best singing competition show of all time. Like, there's something about it that just, just other shows don't have. It feels really magical on American Idol. I don't know. Um, you can really tell that the whole point is just to make people's dreams come true. It's no secret that several singing competition shows have produced some megastars. X Factor produced One Direction and Fifth Harmony, The Voice produced Jordan Smith and Morgan Wallen, and American Idol produced Jordan Sparks and Adam Lambert, in addition to the household names I mentioned earlier. But where are some of the other contestants and winners now? I spoke with Taylor Hicks, winner of Season 5 of American Idol. It was amazing because I had worked, you know, 10 years trying to create a break for myself. And... You know, what a break it was. It was very blessed. The Birmingham, Alabama native was on American Idol when he was 29 years old. Known for his gray hair and incredible country voice, Hicks tackled notoriously difficult songs such as Otis Redding's Try a Little Tenderness and Stevie Wonder's Living for the City. Despite doubt from Simon Cowell in his audition, Hicks ended up not only winning season five of American Idol, but even defeating singer Chris Daughtry in doing so. Since his win, Hicks has had tremendous success. 
He was the first American Idol alum to have a Vegas residency. He guest starred in an episode of Law & Order Special Victims Unit, and he opened a restaurant in his hometown called Or Drink and Dine, which is now Saw's Barbecue. But what is the star up to now? Every day's a challenge, um, and every day we should be thankful that we, that we have that day. I'm extremely happy um, about being, you know, a part of something that I've always dreamed to be, of being a part of. I'm releasing um, a new single soon, and I've got a new single out called Port Swing, which I love. And, you know, excited to, to release a full-length record towards the end of this year. As singing competition shows are beginning to decline in popularity, American Idol has not been receiving the same amounts of high praise as it used to. According to an article from Billboard, the seasons following season two of American Idol did not do nearly as well in the finale episode. The season two finale had over 38 million viewers, but other seasons have not been able to achieve that milestone. Just this week, one of the most shocking events happened on the show. In the top five elimination episode on Sunday, singer Wei Ani was cut along with Zachariah Smith. Fans of the show took to Twitter to express their disappointment. Some even say that the show should be called Country Idol, as it seems as though country artists are usually the ones that win or make it far in the competition. I was actually so shocked when Wei didn't make it through, because I think she's incredible. Usually I can like agree with who wins, but there have been some major upsets throughout the years. A lot of the time, the people that don't win their season actually end up being more successful than the person who does, and I think that's going to be true for her. Some notable American Idol upsets include Tori Kelly, Todger Call, and David Archuleta. Arguably, the most notable upset was that of Jennifer Hudson in Season 3. Unlike Season 3 winner Fantasia Barino, Jennifer Hudson has become an EGOT winner. Although Barino is also a Grammy winner, many fans believe that Hudson deserved to win. These upsets have led fans to speculate on the nature of singing competition shows as a whole, and whether the winner is purely decided on raw vocals and talent alone, or if commercial ability and physical appeal also play a role. Regardless of the general appeal of the show, it is an undeniable fact that it gives aspiring musicians a chance to make their voices heard. The success of singing shows may be declining, but the need for good singers isn't going anywhere. For WNUR News, I'm Jessica Watts. Welcome back to WNUR News. It's 6.21 p.m. Just like your odds at winning American Idol are a gamble, all bets are on at Northwestern, with betting games and gambling playing a substantial role in shaping some students' experiences. Whether it's a p- whether it be poker, blackjack, Russian roulette, or DraftKings, Michelle Huang ha- goes all in. It's all. Thousand is the bet. Gambling isn't typically included when people think of the quintessential college experience, but individual or with friends in casinos or in dorm rooms with real money or just for fun, it's a part of Northwestern student life and maybe a larger part than expected. So how do Northwestern students bet? For today's special broadcast, we're investigating this piece of campus culture. We're going all in. Why 
Weinberg freshman Jeremy Chung and his friends have a weekly poker night on Fridays. Although it's casual and fun, Chung and his friends have a well-oiled system. So usually our group of friends and I will um, we'll meet up and usually it's 1838 and um, we usually play like once like once a week. We actually we don't usually we don't play with cards or chips. We use a, we use a website. It makes things a little bit easier to keep track of everything, everyone's like winnings. And then at the end of every session, we have a spreadsheet where we keep track of how much everyone made or lost. And then at the end of the year, we'll do a payout. Because the group bets real money, things can get precarious. So I have made $32.69. So at the top of the spreadsheet is everyone's total that they've made or lost. Oh, you're lead. Oh no no no! Someone made thirty-six. Yep. Someone has lost eighty-nine. Yeah, yeah. So the the buy-ins for each game are ten dollars. Um, you can buy in more if you lose all of it. So some people will buy in for at the end of the night thirty dollars or so. Um, I try not to do that. Um, I don't want to lose too much money. <laughs> There are also students at Northwestern that bet at the more intense side of the spectrum, where buy-ins cost hundreds of dollars. Weinberg Jr. Ryan Lee doesn't play poker as often as he used to. Back when he did, the stakes were pretty high. I mean, I haven't played that much recently, but I think it's because, like, when I play at home, like, I play, like, decently high stakes. Like, you know, we probably play with, like, more than, like, $50 each. So then, like, the winner gets, like, around, like, 100 200 and then, like, I think my first time I played poker here, I won, like, 150 bucks. So it's just, like, I play for more money than, like, most people do. But all things considered, Lee says he sits more in the middle when it comes to risk and reward. I mean, some people play poker because, like, it's, like, something they do, like, for their job. Or, like, it's related to their job in terms of, like, the probability and stuff like that. So, like, they're more serious and, like, tend to play with more money. I know people who play with, like... $300 buy-ins, and then I think in like AKSI and a few other like fintech clubs, they play with like a lot more money, like $1,000 buy-ins. And then like people who play like really, really casually just play with like five bucks. Others gamble on a more individual and casual basis. A common type is sports betting. Basically, I put down money like on some aspect of the usually basketball game. And if it happens, then like I make some amount of money. That was McCormick Jr. Justin Chang. He recently picked up sports betting through the app DraftKings. He says that so far, it's all a good time. When you put money on the line, whether it's real money, your own money, or like the free money, quote free money, you're like more excited to watch the game because you're watching the game, you're right, and you're like, okay, if this happens, I'm making money. So like, please, please, please happen. Like, please win or please score this amount of points. Since you're putting down real stakes on the line, it makes like watching the game more exciting. Regardless, gambling is gambling, and Chang says the excitement of it can create dangerous situations. And I think sports betting can be just as bad as, if not worse than casino, because you can put down like a thousand, you can put down a large amount of money. There's no limit to how much money you can put down. So you can easily lose a lot of money. And I know people that lose money. Because like when you watch the game, I think the term is like you feel the adre- adrenaline. That adrenaline, I think, is what powers the addiction. So my eyes were opened. Chang started playing this year, but many students at Northwestern picked up betting games like poker 
blackjack, and Russian roulette before coming to campus. They learn to play with their families or hometown friends and continue that experience here. In certain cases, they also bring some crazy stories. Weinberg Jr. Stephen Leo learned blackjack from his uncle when he was little. On his 21st birthday, Leo took his experience to the casino. Um, my uncle, he's a pretty big blackjack player. So like when I was young, we used to always play blackjack at like family dinners and stuff. So he taught me how to like count cards and like like memorize like different hands and stuff. Um, basically like he was he was like kind of joking and saying like when you turn 21, we're going to go to the casino and you're just going to like clean them out. Like he was like joking around. So on my birthday, I went to the casino. And so like I started off at a $25 table and then like once I got like $200 and I moved up to like the $50 table and then once I got $500 I moved up to the, like the $100 table. Eventually, things reached a breaking point. And um, I think I like every, my uncle was like joking around being like, oh, like all of his bets are just like really lucky because like he's 21. He's just blowing like his money away. So like I think they gave me some slack a little bit, but then towards the end, like, they were starting to get kind of mad, and, like, there was this old man who was, like, really mad, because I would take all of his cards, right, because you go in a line, right, and, like, every time I would take all of his cards and leave him with the back card, so he would lose every time, and he was getting really mad, and, like, he was, like, pointing at me, and then, like, finally, like, there's, like, security guards that came, they're, like, yeah, man, like, we know what you're doing, like, you gotta leave. Unfortunately, now I can't go anymore, and I think my dad is banned, too, because, like, my grandma's, like, to play the slot machine, right? My grandma, like, my old relative, so, like, they're pretty mad, because, like, they, like, they can go for hours. Like, they go so much every weekend to play the slot machines, and, like, I basically got our whole family banned, so they're not too happy about that. Weekly poker nights, DraftKings, high-risk, high-reward players, and tales of getting kicked out of casinos. This was a sneak peek into the betting world at Northwestern. For WNUR News, I'm Michelle Huang. So, you may be wondering why you're hearing stories about American Idol and going all-in during a broadcast about AI. Well, this quarter special broadcast has a twist. AI does not just stand for artificial intelligence, but could mean other things as well. This broadcast includes anything with the initials AI. So, for our next story, our AI is Apple Innovation. Apple Innovation isn't just happening with the latest iPhone or MacBook. It involves fruit, too. WNUR Brandon's Condrits bit into the University of Minnesota's fruit breeding program, discovering a little bit about some of the world's favorite apple varieties along the way. As a kid, David Bedford wasn't the biggest Apple fan. I used to put apples in the same category as Brussels sprouts. They're good for you, but it doesn't mean I have to enjoy them. But 45 years ago, he took a job at the University of Minnesota. That's when things changed. It was the beginning of a career in Apple innovation. Somewhere along the line, I had an epiphany that apples can be better than Red Delicious. So that was the first <laughs> level of, of change in, in my world. Let's take a step back. If you like apples, you're probably familiar with Red Delicious, Granny Smith, or Gala. They're some of the most popular types, and they've been around for decades. But what about the Honeycrisp, known worldwide for its sweetness, juiciness, and crispy texture? It's only been on the market for about 20 years, but it commonly rivals some of the oldest varieties. How did it come to be? The answer lies only two states away, and a few Zoom meetings unlocked the world of apple breeding at the University of Minnesota. 
University of Minnesota breeding apple breeding program began back in 1907. The whole point of our breeding program was to develop apples that would live in a northern climate. Minnesota is uh, even a zone colder than Illinois, so it really pushes the limit of where apples can grow. Anything that you would know the name of does not really live in Minnesota. That's David Bedford from before. Even though apples weren't always his fruit of choice, he's worked throughout his career to raise the bar for apple enjoyers worldwide. My job has been to uh, develop new varieties that not not only can live in Minnesota, we have to still remember that always, then it has to be something that excites the palate, something that um, gives you a memorable eating experience is the way I look at it. Bedford has been a key player in the cultivation and development of nearly 30 new apples. Honeycrisp is the most popular though, and he says it put the U of M research team on the map. In 1991, we released Honeycrisp, which really has done very well around the world and kind of elevated uh, our program and people's awareness of it. We've released several since then, but we're using Honeycrisp genetics quite heavily in the program. That's the, still the bar that we measure everything by. If it's not as good or better than Honeycrisp, then we get rid of it. Dr. Jim Luby, a professor at the university and the fruit breeding program's director, has been beside Bedford since the beginning. Although they didn't make the cross that gave rise to the Honeycrisp, they oversaw its development. They both remember the first time they tasted what would later become a worldwide favorite. The cross was made well before David and I were there. It was made back when we were probably in elementary school or before. <laughs> but when we arrived or when we sort of found it in 1982 or three, David was the first one to taste it of the two of us. And he recognized that it was a really unusual apple. It was so different than what was normal that I was intrigued by it, but a little confused. Like, well, what is this? He brought some in for me. I happened to be working in the office that day and I agreed with him. The closest comparison I had at that time would have been Asian pears. Crisp, juicy. I've always been a big fan of texture and, and crisp texture in particular. Yeah, this is really a usual texture and a good flavor. Developing the Honeycrisp was no easy task, however. It was a complicated process that requires patience, and they still follow it today. It all begins with crossing the pollen of two existing apple types. There's a short window for that process. We have about one week a year, as I say, one week a year to save the world from mediocre apples. And luckily enough... That is right now. You, you caught right at the front end of this. The breeding will actually start this weekend. That period is now. Mid to late May is when the weather is perfect for making those crosses. It all has to happen in the bloom period of apples. And in Minnesota, that's about a week long. In Illinois, you get a little, little longer. Maybe yours is two weeks, you know. But once those apples are done blooming, there is no breeding. This window is crucial as thousands of new trees result. Every year we generate about somewhere in the neighborhood of 5,000 new trees that come from our hybridization. And over the next 15 years of each cross, we throw them away, throw them away, throw them away until only a few are left. The real job is getting through all those trees and finding the few that look promising. Well, Honeycrisp, from the time the cross was made till the time it was released was 30 years. We have reduced that now down closer to 2018, something like that, but it's still a long-term process. As you can probably tell, you need a big team to create a brand new apple. Luby says everything they do wouldn't be possible without their staff on and off the field. 
David's kind of managed the whole field aspect of our breeding program. You know, we've been working together for 40 years, so we we can kind of read each other's minds at this point. David's kind of the field boss, but you need a orchard manager who makes sure that the crew gets things right, does things at the right time. The graduate students advance the science. All those people really contribute to the success. David or I probably get more notoriety, but really all those people have key roles to play. Once Bedford and Luby were ready to release the Honeycrisp, they had no way of knowing how it would perform. At the time, the industry was pretty satisfied with the existing favorites. There were a lot of apple growers in the 1980s there that were, weren't really interested. They were pretty satisfied. They had Red Delicious, they had Golden Delicious, Macintosh. There was not a lot of interest in new varieties. There was no question that we were going to carry it forward and release it, but there was no way to know if the world would accept it or not. You know, it could have been just accepted as uh, that strange apple with the pear-like texture, you know, and, and it would die quietly out behind the barn somewhere. Honeycrisp didn't die out, though. Its texture and sweetness set it apart, and once customers had it, they had to go back for more. It caught on slowly, organic growth, I guess you'd say, and mainly in the Twin Cities market at first. Gradually, other growers in other parts of the country heard about this, caught on, and consumers in other parts of the country got introduced to it. It went from really very little production in, say, the year 2000 up to, I think it's around 30 million bushels now. It ranks third as far as production in the United States now. But that crispy texture comes at a price. Very good texture is not always an easy apple to handle commercially. You enjoy it when you get it to the store, but that grower has to grow it, pick it, get it through a sorting line packed and shipped 2,000 miles without damaging it. Still, Bedford and Luby say Honeycrisp broke the mold, changing the industry for the better. Its popularity has been a career highlight for them. All of the emails, phone calls, and people on the street who thank them for it make the years of growing trees worth it. Individuals will come up to me and say, oh, you know, thank you for the honeycrisp. You know, you could say, well, you get used to it and you do to some degree, but then then I'll get, I don't know, one email a month or something. Maybe it's from England. Maybe it's from California. Somebody saying, I had the first honeycrisp, you know, of my life and unbelievable. <laughs> so you never get quite used to it. I mean, there's always somebody reminds you that it is a pretty exciting thing. Honeycrisp is impacting new varieties too. Most of the apples the team is working on today come from the unique fruit. We have two varieties that are really coming to market imminently here. One is called Triumph. That actually, I think, debuted last year as far as when trees were available. And then another one has just a number right now until we get the uh, okay on our trademark application from the Patent and Trademark Office. That one should come out probably next year. With all of these new apples and every time-old variety out there, only one question remained. What's your favorite apple now? Well, uh, you know, it's almost like asking asking a parent, which is your favorite kid? <laughs> I love each one of them their, their own way. Certainly the, the, the top three for me would be Honeycrisp. That's the parent. And, and the other two that I like came from Honeycrisp. So the next one would be Sweet Tango. I actually like the flavor of Sweet Tango a little better. And then the third one would be one that's one of the newer ones that came from Honeycrisp, and that's Rave. That, that's an early apple, much tartar. Although apples are great for on-the-go snacks, apple flavor 
Bedford baked goods are another way to enjoy them. As you might guess, Luby and Bedford are big fans. Favorite apple dessert is probably apple crisp. In our house, the favorite apple has always been our Zestar variety, which is an excellent cooking apple. And in fact, when our kids were young, they could even tell when we made an apple crisp with another variety. One of my favorites is Waldorf salad made with honey crisp. You know, Waldorf salad's a nice combination of tangy and sweet and, and salty, but put a honey crisp in there now, and now you've got texture. And even though David Bedford wasn't always an apple fan, he sure is now. Next time you're enjoying a juicy honey crisp, know that you have the team at the University of Minnesota to thank. We've got so much going for us, and it's so good for you, and it, now it tastes good. You know, that was that last component we had to get lined up, was, was enjoyable eating, and I think we've Achieve that now. For WNUR News, I'm Brandon Condritz. Everyone has one crazy plane story, but if you've worked with planes for nearly 30 years, you'll have a lot of crazy stories. Brendan Priceman has the story of his dad's wildest aviation incidents. Most people think of airplane incidents as something simple. Turbulence, lost luggage, maybe even a bathroom mishap. However, when your life's work is on planes, things can be a little different. David Preisman, my father, is an Air Force colonel with over 27 years of experience. In his 4,000 hours of flying time, he has seen some interesting things. Perhaps the most memorable was a microburst on the island of Okinawa, Japan. The microburst ended up nearly flipping the plane onto its side. As you might expect, the landing was far from routine. Even inside the plane, the chaos was easily noticeable. Yeah. <laughs> 
However, there are some more pleasant things that can happen to aircraft. Prizeman notes that bird strikes are easily noticeable from inside the cabin, but it's not because of sight or sound. It's because of smell. He also noted that not all bird strikes are as pleasant to deal with. Canadian geese are quite large and can be devastating to aircraft engines. However, his wildest story is even crazier than a bird strike. During this particular flight, the cargo door, a 10-foot-wide clamshell door, was improperly locked. While normally four handles should be used to ensure safety, on this particular flight, only two were latched. The pressurization change proved to be nearly disastrous. However, aviation has overall been a fulfilling and safe career for Prizeman. He says that of all the hours he's flown, only five of them have been genuinely stressful. He also says there's another perk to taking a job in aviation. Not everyone can be Tom Cruise, but every aviator just might be able to look like especially if they're able to avoid any birds or weather issues. For WNUR News, I'm Brendan Preisman. Deep in the Baltic Sea between Sweden and Finland sits a small archipelago. These are the Åland Islands, a unique blend of Swedish and Finnish cultures. They've had a long history that has rendered them one of the few successes of the post-World War I era. Jonah Turner has more on the details of that history. In the cold waters of the Baltic Sea, at the mouth of the Gulf of Bothnia sits a unique group of islands. Made up of over 6,700 islands, a population of 30,000 lives on only 60 to 80 of them, with Fasta Island the largest, serving as home of 90% of the population. Sitting almost exactly between Finland and Sweden, the natural question is, who do these islands belong to? A quick Google search will tell you that they are a region of Finland, yet the simple answer leaves their rich culture and unique position completely hidden. 
They may be Finnish, yet their official language is Swedish. The mystery continues as the islands have their own parliament, government, and function as an autonomous state of Finland, but are almost entirely culturally Swedish. How such a Swedish place should become part of Finland is embroiled in post-World War I discussions of the world's future. Following the conclusion of World War I and the surrender of Germany, as I'm sure has been beat into almost every American child for years in almost every history class, the Paris Peace Conference was convened to decide the course of the world. This was key to creating the post-world order, and involved creating the League of Nations, the predecessor to the modern United Nations. Much as the UN does today, it was tasked with settling international disputes and ensuring world peace in the post-war setting. The League's founding was rife with issues, with many colonial possessions that had contributed to the war effort left out of the settlement. Here's Northwestern history professor Robin Bates. Colonial, or, or colonial leaders were looking towards the post-colonial world. Uh, Gandhi would be another example. Okay. Because they say, you know, we as colonial subjects were very involved in World War I. Uh, people from British India served in the British Army. People from Vietnam, uh, which is where Ho Chi Minh yeah, is from, yeah. served in the French colonial army. We're here now, and we should be part of the peace settlement. And again, this is what I'm saying. Yeah. It's a very exclusive club. It really ends up being just France, Britain, and the U.S. Uh, that make all the decisions that everyone else just has to kind of get in line. Other world powers also felt cheated. You don't have anything like, and again, we shouldn't idealize these things too much, but nothing like the Marshall Plan that sort of gives the defeated some kind of stake yeah. in the post-war order. Um, so, for example, Italy, although it's on the winning side, just feels it didn't get what it was promised. It leaves the league to try to go snatch Ethiopia. Um, Japan was on the winning side, but didn't have a hand in drawing up the treaties. Felt like it was being cheated. Yeah. It drives into Manchuria in 1931, and then makes a play for the rest of China in 1937. Again, the, the, not restrained by the league. Much of these problems were exasperated by another AI, American isolationism. As the post-war years trundled on, the United States began to retreat back across the ocean, focusing on its own affairs and leaving Europe to sort itself out amidst a gathering economic storm. As they can. Uh, the League of Nations had many notable absentees, so when we work in America, yeah. we <laughs> have a bit to answer for, even though it was the president's idea. Yeah. Um, the Soviet Union, of course, had a very frosty relationship with the League. This, in addition to the lack of support from other great powers such as the USSR, led to the League being unable to back its own resolutions. Much of the goals of the League were to prevent war, attempting to create buffer states between existing world powers, which often failed quite spectacularly. To try to stop conflict between Italy and Yugoslavia, and a bunch of dissatisfied Italian war veterans seize it, yeah. called Fanume. Okay. Um, and then the Italian government has to kind of sheepishly diffuse the conflict. But yeah. Again, it's, it's sort of, you try to split the baby and it just doesn't quite work. Yeah. Um, but Ireland seems like it's maybe a special case, maybe the only example of a place where this pattern seems to have enjoyed some kind of success. This makes the Ireland Islands a unique success of the League of Nations. While the islands had overwhelmingly voted to join Sweden, with over 90% voting in favor, it had been long considered part of the Finnish state. As part of the agreement, the archipelago was deemed a demilitarized zone, allowing peace in a strategically important area of the Baltic Sea. Additionally, it ensured that the islands would remain an autonomous state, part of Finland, but with its own legislator governance, as stated in the Act on the Autonomy of Åland of 1920.
This laid the framework for the island's current existence, which was reaffirmed upon Finland joining the EU in 1991 as a stipulation of their entry. It was a unique effort towards preserving the unique cultures and identities of minority groups that should be cherished and preserved for generations to come. Thanks to this ruling and cooperation through the years on the part of Finland, the culture of the Åland Islands has been preserved. This history that has placed the Åland Islands at the center of world events on the economically and militarily vital Baltic Sea has created a unique culture that, while Swedish, incorporates elements of Finnish culture. Scandinavia as a whole has a long history of music, from Viking times to their unique and varied style brought to the yearly Eurovision music competition. Long known for such pop acts as ABBA and heavy metal, the Åland Islands take a much softer approach, specializing in Nordic jazz. While Nordic jazz is very similar to the traditional jazz you hear across the United States and the world, it's often described as having a more free, spacious, experimental, and contemplative sound, and more open to collaborations with European folk and ethnic musicians. This makes it uniquely positioned to incorporate the unique cultural elements of the island islands. This is done every year in the yearly Island Sea Jazz Festival put on by Archipelago Sea Jazz. The festival is held across the island's capital of Maryham, with venues both inside and outside along the streets and waterfront. These performances are intermixed with local food such as herring, which is often taken across Finland and Sweden for sale, and events showcasing local craftsmen and talent for tourists and locals alike. From its thriving apple and cider industry to the thousands of tourists it draws in the warmer summer months, the Åland Islands have sailed a treacherous path to reach the present. Through it all, they've maintained a unique status as one of the few successes of the League of Nations, and one that survives to this day as a unique corner of Scandinavia and the world. If you ever happen to reach Europe, why not sail to the islands as has been done for centuries to enjoy and explore a unique clash of Scandinavian culture. Sit by the sea, enjoy a little bit of jazz, and appreciate the momentous history that has led to a unique little corner of the world. This has been Jonah Turner, WNUR News. Celebrate CUFO's 50th anniversary as we delve into UFOlogy and search for extraterrestrial life. Witness sightings, investigations, and ponder the profound questions of intelligent life. Paul O'Connor takes us on this enlightened exploration. Did that sound a little different to you? Well, it's probably because that little blurb was written by ChatGBT. Now let's get into our final story of the evening. Look like the sun as if the sun appeared, the orangish red, but there were sparks uh, emanating across the sides. This year marks the 50th anniversary of the founding of KUFOS, or the Center for UFO Studies. On its semi-centennial, we'll take a look at the history of ufology, including one of its most important forefathers, the famous Northwestern professor J. Allen Hynek. And we'll take a look at how it can position itself to explain some of the world's most mystifying phenomena. From WNUR News, I'm Paul O'Connor. On this special broadcast, we're going to take a look at one of the most exciting topics in AI, alien invasions. Founded back in 1973, the Center for UFO Studies was spearheaded by then Northwestern professor J. Allen Hynek. By the time of its founding, he was already established as one of the nation's leading experts on the topic of unidentified flying objects. For instance, he had worked on the Air Force's Project Blue Book, which according to the Federal Bureau of Investigation, sought to investigate reports of UFOs in the period spanning 1947 to 1969. 
1972, he wrote the book The UFO Experience, published by the Henry Regneri Company. By the time of the center's founding, he was looking to take his UFO studies to the next level. And he saw uh, cases that weren't being investigated and that, uh, that there, you know, there really was a need for a, a UFO center uh, to do serious research. By the end of 73, um, you know, the, the Center for UFO Studies was in existence. And uh, he, he formed it as kind of a scientific uh, think tank. That was Mark Rodiger, the current director of the center. Rodiger says that the process of gathering information relies significantly on witness testimony. Uh, though we prefer, if possible, to get data from instruments or photos, right, or other, other kinds of things that are not reliant only on people telling you what they saw. But still, 99% of the time, it is that. But scientific discipline and technologies ground the work of KUFOS as well. We've done uh, large-scale data analysis. Uh, we've worked with abductees and, and witnesses and given them psychological tests. Uh, again, we've analyzed data and samples in the laboratory. You know, we've uh, also engaged in field studies where we have worked with some other groups to design uh, instruments to uh, put into the field. MUFON, or the Mutual UFO Network, is another organization that analyzes UFO claims using scientific discipline. I'll speak to witnesses, gather data. If there's physical evidence, submit it for evaluation. So we get about maybe anywhere between seven to 10,000 reports a year. Of course, the vast majority of reports that you're going to get are misidentifications, a good 90% of them. But what trickles down, those are the nuggets you're looking for. It's like gold mining. That was Sam Maranto, the state director for the Illinois branch of MUFON. He says that an early encounter with a UFO was one of the major reasons he became interested in this work. Well, as a child, I had this sighting in 1959 at an uncle's cottage. I went in the back by a channel. I started skipping rocks over the water. All of a sudden, there was a bright orb of light flew over my right shoulder, went over a fence, and then came up over and back of a tree, a willow. Uh, my aunt said she was yelling and looking for me, and I looked, and she was standing there. It was like I had just woken up, and it was dark out. Whatever transpired scared the heck out of me, and I couldn't talk about it for years. Similar to Kufos, sifting through witness testimony forms much of the MUFON's work. But Maranto says that recently, the scope of their work has broadened. I handle X number of investigators, which are, I think we're up to about 16 investigators. Reports come in, they're assigned to each state. I evaluate them initially. We have a triage system, and um, then we assign them, and then we have them investigate it. Staying in contact with a base of subscribers is also an important priority. There are uh, subscriber members who subscribe to the journal, and we have informational meetings and presentations, mainly Zoom these days, guest speaking at different places, and libraries, etc., but these organizations have had difficulty gaining the support of academic institutions. This is despite the fact that KUFOS was the project of J. Allen Hynek, a distinguished Northwestern professor. No, well, actually, the Northwestern did not want any part of the center. Dr. Hynek wanted to have Northwestern support the center, but they did not, either in funding, office space, or anything else. 
and there's an example of a stigma because the uh, there's Heineck, right? World world renowned scientist studying UFOs, and he could not get his own university to support his work. J. Allen Heineck was originally invited to Northwestern as a professor in the Department of Physics and Astronomy, but it was a relatively small department when he first started out. But his time at Northwestern coincided with a period of significant expansion for the department. This had partly to do with advances Heineck made in the field of image orthicon astronomy, which improved the capacity of telescopes to absorb light. Telescopes with orthicon imaging were installed in multiple observatories, including the Dearborn Observatory in Evanston. But according to the University Library Archives, as he started getting more involved with UFO studies, the university made clear moves to distance itself. This meant separating itself entirely from KUFOS, even as it struggled financially. It's become a dogma. It's also a political thing. And and sad because people are afraid to engage the subject matter because of taboo. And once you engage it, you lose. Um, you may lose funding for research, or you may even lose a job. Jason Wong is a current professor in the Northwestern Department of Astronomy and Physics. He says that research within departments like his don't typically center on the kinds of questions Heineck asked about UFOs. I would say a lot of astrophysical research stems from understanding physical processes. Um, so that's less of like the, oh, we see some lights, you know, what kind of lights could these come from? In general, like that's not kind of where uh, like the foundations of a, a modern astronomy are built off of. So that's not usually a focus of folks that study astronomy. However, he said one of the most exciting ways extraterrestrial life is considered in the university setting is via biosignatures. Biosignatures, it's like they're trying to imagine, you know, what kind of life, extraterrestrial life would be. If we were to take a spectra of another planet, whether this planet could be habitable. And that's, and that's quite hard because we're trying to imagine what life is like outside of Earth. And we really only have Earth. So people are use their imagination to think about what other ways could life exist. The question of extraterrestrial life is a deep one, spanning generations. It's also a divisive question, generating fierce debate and exposing layers of fear and insecurity. But Maranto says that perhaps thinking about extraterrestrial life provides an opportunity to think a little bit about ourselves. I'm certain this is not about them. It's about who we are, what we are, and why we are. It's about us more so than it is about them. For WNUR News, I'm Paul O'Connor. Welcome back to WNUR News. It's 7.01 p.m. Central Time. That's all for our AI special broadcast at 6 p.m. For more news updates and reports, follow us on Twitter at WNUR News. You can listen to these and other WNUR News stories on our website, WNUR.News. That's WNUR.News. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Our producer today is Jesse Chen, and our reporters are Daniel Gross, Jonah Turner, Brandon Kondritz, Paul O'Connor, Michelle Huang, Jesse Chen, Brendan Priceman, and myself. From all of us here at WNUR News, thanks for listening. I'm Cara Totley. And I'm Jessica Watts. Catch our next newscast on Monday, May 22nd at 6 p.m. Now back to scheduled programming.